Good morning, men. I said good morning, men. Hey, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to open God's Word with you all this morning. Uh, it's a, a joy to be on the Amen teaching team. Uh, in case you're wondering, Sandy is in town and was planning on being here. Uh, and yes, he did uh, a lot to me, the part of 1 Corinthians, on women's head coverings in worship. So I'm grateful for that, but apparently the Lord struck him down, and he texted me this morning and says he has a hurt ankle and can't come. So when you see him limping around, don't blame it on me in retaliation, blame it on the Lord. Uh, I, it's an honor and encouragement to see a bunch of men gathering around uh, to really study the Word of the Lord. Uh, it's a movement of God, it's encouraging them to be a part of. I want to thank our leadership uh, for leading us in the Amen Bible study. Particularly, I want to thank the initiative that they have made uh, towards younger men, our Amen for All Men and Mentoring Initiative. Uh, the reality is we have a generation coming out of college and into young adulthood that are crying out for leaders and for mentors and people that will help explain what it means to be a godly man in an ungodly society. And so I want to thank all the mentors that have uh, reached out. We've had uh, over 15 of you men have reached down to younger men. I want to thank you for that and for the younger men that have been bold enough to reach up. I want to thank you for that and encourage that to continue. If you're interested in participating on one end of the spectrum or the other, you can talk to Don Riley who opened us in prayer. It's a very encouraging thing for me to see. Uh, I want to, before we start this passage, I want to, uh, well, before we read it, I want to go ahead and tell you this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all of uh, Pauline literature. It's probably top three uh, difficult passages. This is in the top three. So again, thank you, Sandy, for that. Um, <laughs> I am inevitably, as I unpack this, going to disagree with men that I respect significantly. Uh, this has been a contentious passage in the history of the church, uh, really since the early church, since the second century. And there is a world of exegetical material, both scripturally and historically, uh, that are used on all ends of the spectrum when it comes to this passage. So on the one hand, I'm going to be disagreeing with, with uh, men that you know and you respect. I'm going to go ahead and say their names. I'm going to disagree with R.C. Sproul, who is going to find himself on the far right of the interpretation of this passage. He finds himself in great company with a uh, with somebody that I really respect a lot, uh, Wayne Grudem. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to align myself with this passage with our ESV study Bible, which is a little bit further to the central, and what I think more faithful to the actual text uh, in its totality, in the context. A little bit further to the, to the left is Gordon Fee, who probably has one of the best commentaries on this book. Uh, it's, it's very thorough, and I use him for all kinds of stuff. But I'm going to disagree with Gordon Fee as well. And I'm really going to disagree with the far-left folks, the lesbian, uh, the lesbian uh, hermeneutic hurdlers that kind of turn anything of God's Word they want into their own agenda. Come to think of it, that might be why Sandy didn't want to teach this morning. So, all right, let's loosen up. All right, we're going to have to loosen up. But I am just saying that because I'm going to disagree with all men and women. Uh, sorry if I offended the lesbians in the crowd this morning. So, Just kidding. It's a joke. It's a men's Bible study. Okay, so let's look at 1 Corinthians 11, uh, starting at chapter, verse 2. 
Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the tradition even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. (laughs) Nevertheless, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This passage uh, is tangled with cultural tensions, uh, creation, design, and all kinds of interpretive dis- difficulties. I really think that this is one of the few passages that Peter had in mind, if you look at the verse at the top of your list, uh, that Peter had in mind when he talked about Paul's writing. Uh, he says, our brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, i.e., the, that nature of headship and worship and women's head coverings, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. When we interpret Scripture, there is a temptation to uh, practice what's called isogesis. That is reading our own agenda into God's Word. And Peter recognizes that many people, even in his day, took Paul's letter, the unstable and the ignorant, and they twisted God's Word for their own destruction. So I want to give you three, three t- ways that people do that uh, to, in interpretation of Scripture regularly. We're going to go through this passage in a Reformed tradition. The Reformed tradition of interpreting Scripture is, on the one hand, to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. For there's no greater interpretation of God's Word than God's Word. Now, this isn't at the expense of the history of the church. It's not at the expense of understanding the historical context and the author's intents. But it is to say that we hold primary what God's Word has to say about God's Word. Secondly, in the Reformed interpretation of Scripture, we understand that context is king. And when we look at the authorial intent of a passage, the context of the passage uh, carries a lot of weight. Now, three dangerous delusions in interpretation. Uh, a, A dangerous delusion is taking a good help in interpreting Scripture and making it an ultimate goal. Here's what I mean by that. The intentional fallacy uh, right there is heavily focused on what the author's intention is. 
the good thing of understanding the author's intention becomes a primary goal. You may have heard of N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a fantastic theologian, but he's fantastically incorrect when he talks about justification in Paul. He wrote a book called What St. Paul Really Said. Anytime we go to Scripture and say, look, you can't really understand what this guy wrote just from what this guy wrote, we've got to use other historical material to really understand what God's Word is saying, then that's called an intentional fallacy. The next is a graphic fallacy, and a graphic fallacy pulls God's Word out of its redemptive historical context. It's like taking the passage in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Taking it out of God's Word and putting it on the wall of your weight room. And then, if you really think that you can bench press 900 pounds, then you've proved the passage wrong. The reason is, it's a graphic fallacy. That passage is never intended to help you lift more weights. There's a redemptive historical context where Paul is in prison, and he's speaking directly to the suffering that we experience as Christians, isn't he? That's a graphic fallacy. Now, the effective fallacy uh, is an overemphasis on the audience. How does the audience receive this, and there is even a bent towards a contemporary audience. In the fallacies of interpretation of this passage, you run mostly into the intentional fallacy or the effective fallacy. And we're going to see that as we unpack it. And I'm telling you, this is a very tangled text. But what Paul does here is he begins to speak on the order of the corporate worship of God's people. And in a chaotic culture, Paul wants to help his people understand the necessary order that comes in public worship. And in this, this chapter, chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, Paul begins to unpack what we'll find in chapter 12, what we'll find in chapter 13, and finally what culminates in chapter 14. And he kicks it off by talking about our favorite topic, head coverings for women right? Thank you, Sandy. I know that there's a few people that probably aren't here this morning because you were up so late debating this topic, but we're going to look and see what God's Word has to say. All right, the first thing we're going to see is that God's, uh, God's design for headship is found in the traditions of the apostles. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to talk about the order of public worship through God's design for headship, and he's going to access the role of headship in the church, in corporate worship, through the window of covenant, specifically the covenant of marriage and then the covenant of grace. But God's design for headship is found in the traditions of the apostles. Look at what he says in 2a. He says, because you remember me in everything. If we're going to access the Bible's teaching on headship, then we need to remember the apostles in all we do. Now, the Corinthians had a special relationship with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul went to Corinth on his second missionary journey. And judging from what we read in Acts chapter 18, verses 1, verses 5, verses 11, we see that he spent up to a year and a half in Corinth. Paul had a lot of time with him. And so when he says, I commend you for remembering me in all that and everything, then what he's saying is he's remembering, they're remembering what he taught them in absolutely everything. And he's using this from a bridge where he had just talked about 
disadvantaging himself so that God could have glory in everything that he does. And we're going to see how that's important here in a second. So the first is that we remember the apostles in all we do. A practical question there for you guys is, do you even know the apostles? Do you prioritize the apostles' teaching? Do you know why knowing the apostles is important for you to understanding headship? The fact is that the apostolic authority is paramount to the canonization of Scripture. And if we don't love what the apostles teach, then we don't love what Jesus taught and the practical implications for our lives. It is paramount that we embrace uh, and remember the apostles in all that we do. Do you spend time with them? The second thing in verse 2 we see is the apostle passes on traditions from Christ. And we see this where the apostle Paul says, maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Okay, what are these traditions and how did he deliver them, right? Well, first, the tradition, this word for tradition, is one that he uses regularly and in the context of the transmission of information from Jesus. He says, if we were to look in just 11.23, right over here in a minute, he says that, that what he learned from God, he passed on to them, what he learned from Christ. He says it again in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, what he learned from Christ, he passed on to his people. And these traditions, if we were to look in Romans 16, I mean Romans 6, verse 17, these traditions are designed to be the bedrock of our discipleship, our obedience as people who have been freed from the slavery of our sin and into a relationship with our Lord and our head, Jesus Christ. So, this isn't a shameless plug for intergenerational relationships and mentoring, but if you want to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ, which is what he says in 11.1, then you're going to take seriously the transmission of information from Christ to other people. Christianity is not a consumeristic and cafeteria endeavor where we take what we want and consume what makes us feel good. It is, by necessity, an endeavor of multiplication. And this is what Paul uh, hits on. And he's calling his people to stand firm in what he received from Christ. Now, God's design for headship is found in the tradition of the apostles. Secondly, God's design for headship is understood through covenant. It's understood through covenant. Now look at this. Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman Wife is her husband. Now, this is where the, the interpretational difficulties begin. Uh, there's a question of how do you, uh, how do you translate gunakos? How do you translate the word for man there? Uh, woman, wife, husband, man. How do you interpret the, the idea of head? Is it source or is it head as in uh, the leadership, the authority, the, the chief, the lord of the person? Uh, there's all kinds of, of um, positions on that, and I'm going to align myself with our ESV study Bible. And that's why you see it even written in your notes this way. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every wife is her husband. When Paul talks about the importance of order and worship, he goes through your relationship with women. How we relate to our wives and how we prepare ourselves to have a wife is a window into what Paul has, God has designed as revealed through Paul uh, for his corporate worship. Now, question, why do I align myself with uh, the ESV study Bible in choosing head 
uh, as the interpretation um, as Lord in authority is because of Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. Uh, if you want to turn to your Bibles there real quick, these same, these same words are used by Paul uh, in his uh, epistle to the Ephesians. Wives, he says in verse 22, this is the same word, gunakos, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. That means he's the authority over her, and the wife is to submit under her, even as Christ is the head of the church. That means that Christ is the head of the church. He's the leader. That's why we call Jesus Lord. He is the head of the church. His body, and is himself and Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he goes on in that passage. You can read it later. I want to ask you, do you lead your wife, if you're married, in a way that is representative of the way you follow Christ? Paul says that the design for headship is understood through the covenant of marriage, and God has assigned headship to the husbands in the covenant of marriage. He's assigned headship to your authority. And this is a a difficult uh, interpretation to have because the application to you and to me uh, is much more severe. Because on the one hand, we've got to ask, as men, are we really living as Christ is our head? Is he really our Lord? If someone were to look at the way we spend our money, is Christ the Lord of our bank account? Do we save more than we give? Do we give to things that benefit us more than the, the name of Jesus and the advancement of his kingdom? If someone were to look at our calendar, would they say that uh, we spend our time in a way that Jesus is Lord? Or that we're Lord? The, 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 the difficulty of interpretation this way is that application is right in our face as men. And then, then how we lead our wives. If someone looked at our calendars, the way we spent our time over the long weekend, did we spend more time as men in self-indulgence watching football? Or do we spend more time actually dying to ourselves so that our wives could be beautified? Ouch. This is difficult. The question is, is your life being brought into alignment with your head? And your head is Jesus Christ. And when Paul talks about headship in worship, he goes through the window of covenant, specifically the covenant of marriage. And your marriage is designed to be a window for the world to see not only the character of God, but the design of God. And if you're unmarried in here today, then I want to challenge you in this regard. Are you focused more on finding the right woman for your life or becoming the man that you need to be? Because you will play like you practice. And this is why we need intergenerational relationships. I work with single guys all the time that are blindly fumbling in the dark for what it means to be a godly man in a relationship. And we need older men to step up and take serious not only the, the prescription that God gives in his word, but the experience that he would have to steward to younger men. And if you're a single man in here today, are you focused on bringing your life into alignment with God's design? Or are you trying to consume women? Because you will play like you practice. God's design for headship is seen through the headship of men through the covenant of marriage. Now, this is difficult to understand, and I thought I'd illustrate it in a way uh, that might be applicable to you all. 
uh, and to me. So I, I emailed Allison, Sandy's wife, and I asked Allison, I said, Allison, could you please describe for me Sandy's headship in marriage? And so what she did was she sent me a picture back from their trip to Israel. So this picture is what she sent me. And you can see Sandy <laughs> on the beach of some water. Maybe that's the Mediterranean Sea. And I just want you to see, look at the vulnerability he leads with. All right. All right. Get that thing off the screen. Obviously, that's a joke. Uh, that really isn't his bathing suit. All right. <laughs> when people look at your marriage, do they see the character and design of God? When they look at the way you're preparing yourself for marriage, do they see the character and design of God? Not only uh, in God's design for headship being understood through covenant, he's assigned headship to husbands in the covenant of grace, but he's also assigned headship to Christ in the covenant of grace. Sorry, headship to men, husbands in the covenant of marriage. He's assigned headship to Christ in the covenant of grace. You see this in the, at the end of verse 3. He says, in the headship of Christ is God. Now, just a note on source, if you study this, if you take kephale, a source here, the word for head, then you're going to be in some dangerous waters Christologically. You're going to be finding yourself cozying up with Jehovah's Witnesses that say that Jesus was the first created being. Not the case. When it says that Christ's head is God, it is giving a window into the Trinitarian relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the one who has all things submitted to him. In chapter 15, verse 28, uh, it says that all things are submitted to Christ. And the glory of the Father is found that the one who has all things submitted to him submitted himself to God. Colossians 1 says that all things are made by him, for him, and through him. There is no dominion, there is no principality, there is no power that is not under the authority of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 tells us that he is above all things. Jesus is is the supreme ruler. But because of this picture of headship that we see in worship, the paradigm needs to be the role of the Son in the covenant of grace. And his head is the Father. His head is God. That is why we read in Philippians 2 that the one who was in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on the nature of man and became a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's why when we look at Matthew 20, Mark, Matthew 26 and Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, right before he's going to the cross, he says, Lord, take, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to experience the wrath that you have on sin, but not my will, but yours be done. It is essential that when we look at headship in the church that we understand the nature of humility, the nature of, of unbelievable uh, the reality of what Paul says that he proclaims in 1 Corinthians 2, that Christ is crucified, the mystery that begins to be celebrated again in the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think, is my favorite verse uh, on the implications of this for us as men, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this idea of headship goes straight to the heart of what Paul has just talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says that he wants to do all for the glory of God, giving no offense to anyone but dis seeking not his own advantage, but the advantage of others. That's the paradigm of Christ. 
That's the paradigm of our head. So on the one hand, when the Bible talks about, the apostle talks about headship, uh, he goes, it's understood through covenant. That's the covenant of marriage and then the covenant of grace. But another thing is, through that, the other implication is that God's design for headship needs to order our corporate worship. Okay, this is where we get into the fun stuff. Are you ready? You buckled up? Good. Glad to hear you are. Uh, let, me, let me just tell you this, this story before we transition. Uh, usually when I talk to men uh, who struggle in leading their girlfriends or their fiancés or uh, their wives and family, uh, their struggle is uh, with their own pride. They want people that they lead to do what they ask them to do. And I think this is exemplified by a story I had with a father, a conversation I had uh, that I'll tell you this story, a father of three kids. And he was so frustrated. He said, Mitchell, this guy doesn't live here anymore. I'm not breaking pastoral confidence. I know he wouldn't mind if I told you. He said, I can't get my kids to obey me. I said, really? Give me an example of that, man. That's frustrating. I've got four kids myself, as you know. He says, I come home from work and toys are everywhere, and I just say, pick up your toys. This place is a mess. He says, nobody listens to me. And I'm like, all right, so what do you do? He's like, well, what what do you think I do? They need to respect my authority. I'm like, all right, tell me about that. He says, I tell them to pick up their toys. And I said, all right, you already said that they don't do that. What do you do next? He said, well, I make sure that they know that I mean business. I'm their authority. I said, okay, how do you make sure you know they mean, that they know you mean business? He says, I'll tell you what I do. I yell at them. If they don't listen to me, then I discipline and put them in the corner because they've got to learn to obey my authority. And I said, well, have you ever tried getting down on their level and helping them pick up the toys and teaching them and serving them and walking alongside of them? Have you ever tried to enter into their world, meeting them where they're at, sacrificing your own pride and your own desire for authority and trying to bring them through service, disadvantaging yourself for their advantage? He's like, no. And I think that story illustrates, and he started doing that, by the way, and the very act of service in leadership for him changed the dynamics of his family. And I think that story illustrates what, I, what is the core struggle for men when it comes to leadership, is our pride. The question is not, do you understand leadership? The question is not, are you going to go to Barnes & Noble, or are you going to go to our bookstore and get the newest book on leadership and implement that in your headship and marriage and family and friendships? The question is, do you know Jesus? Because you're not going to lead like your head until you know your head. And if you don't see how the love has, of God has disadvantaged himself for your advantage, that the love of God has sacrificed himself for your sanctification, substituted himself for your, your penalty that you deserve, then you're not going to be able to love people in the way that we're called to love as men. And you're going to continue to have friction with your wife, and you're going to continue to have friction with your kids and other people in your life that you lead because you're so dadgum arrogant. You think your authoritative position demands that everybody lines up at whatever you say because you're tired and you've been working all day. It's not biblical. You want to talk about tired, we've got a king who's been working for all eternity. And he disadvantaged himself for your gain. We lead and we love and we serve in the same way. Now, we're ready to go. God's design for headship, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it orders our corporate worship. It orders our corporate worship. So, first thing we see in this passage is that men 
who cover their heads in worship dishonor their head. Now, please keep in, in, in mind the trajectory that Paul is doing. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church about what it means to have an ordered worship service in their chaotic culture. He has gone through the, the traditions that he got from Christ, the understanding headship through the relation, covenant relationship, that first to the covenant of marriage and then to the covenant of grace, and now he's getting to the order of public worship, corporate worship in a chaotic society. He says that every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. Now, traditionally, uh, we've taken that in the church where you shouldn't wear hats inside. So Barton Kimbrough has a hat on over there, and so we'd all pick up rocks and throw stones at him. You are covering your head in the house of God. That's not what Paul means by this. Because if we look, if we've studied this passage correctly, then we see that the head of man, on the one sense, yes, it is the head on our head, and yes, uh, there is some exegetical nuances and grammar in the Greek that, that it leads to a debate. Is it talking about long hair? Is it talking about head coverings? Is it literally referring to the head? Uh, I'm going to take, as I'll explain in a minute, the substance that's behind the symbol. And when we understand head, of a man, we're not thinking this. What are we thinking? Christ. So when a man covers his head in worship, Paul is saying that dishonors your head. He's not saying men don't wear hats to church. What he is saying is men don't cover your head when you come into the house of God to worship. How do we cover our head? Well, I decided to look through Scripture as we let Scripture interpret Scripture and see where this language in Greek is used in the Hebrew and in the New Testament. Here are some places that I found. I found that in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, and Esther 6, 12, there's something that there's in common there. That in 2 Samuel 15, it's, it's King David whose son is rebelling against him, Absalom. And his kingdom is fading away from him. And when he's exiled from Jerusalem, you know what it says? He went up to the Mount of Olives with his head covered while he was weeping. He was grieving the loss of his own kingdom. And the Esther passage is when Haman is trying to take the kingdom, get the Jews out of the kingdom, and take the authority from Artaxerxes. And when he covers his head, he's grieving at the loss of his authority in the kingdom. So one way that we cover our head biblically is that we grieve the loss of our own kingdom rather than celebrate the inauguration of Christ. And if you're a man who comes into corporate worship and you're more worried about the loss of your kingdom of finances, the loss of your kingdom of family where everything's dysfunctional, let's not take the fun out of dysfunctional, but don't let it ruin your Sunday morning either. If you're, if you're worried that, that your friendship status and network, your kingdom of relationship is in turmoil and it affects and you, you're grieving that in worship rather than celebrating the inauguration of God's kingdom, then you're covering your head in worship. If you're more worried about your football team losing than you are celebrating your king winning, then you're covering your head in worship. Worship is designed to be a joyful, corporate worship is designed to be a joyful celebration of God's people, and men need to be leading in that. Notice the proactive nature of men's role in worship. We're not passive consumers. It says when you pray and when you prophesy. There's an active participation of men in worship. We're not passive consumers. We don't go to church because we like the music, and oh man, I like that sermon, and oh man, I sure like the temperature of the room that day. It was awesome. 
It's not about your consumption or your pleasure. It's about worship of the Almighty God who died for you and rose from the grave. And men need to lead the way in not covering our head. Secondly, how do we see ourselves covering our heads as men in worship? We see it in Daniel 4, 33, another king. This time the king was Nebuchadnezzar. And after he stood on his, temp, his palace, he looked over Babylon. He said, look at the kingdom I've created. Look at what I've done. God humbled him. And he became like a beast, crawling around the field, fingernails growing out, hair growing long. Same language here that we find in this passage with, uh, to the Corinthians. And when he lives in autonomy from God, separated from God, out of connection with God, his head is covered. And when we come into worship and we're living autonomously, being our own Lord and our own King, rather than serving the one and true Lord and King, then we're covering our head and dishonoring our head. Do you even care? Do you? You should. Because the first order of public worship is that men don't cover their head. And here's the most dangerous one for our moral Memphis matrix. The last place that I see covering head is Matthew 23, 5. You know, this doesn't have the language of here, but it has the concept. And when Jesus is condemning the Pharisees and Sadducees, he, he says that they raise their prayer. He uses a word for a prayer cloak over their heads into the sky for everyone to see. And one way that men cover their head in worship is through their own self-righteousness. You see how that covers the head? Because we are men who find our righteousness in Christ's work, not our own. We're men who find our significance, our purpose, our joy in Christ's work, not our own. And when we come from the moral, chaotic culture that is Memphis, and we have our religious scorecards where we actually think we're better than other people because we know more scripture, or we think we're better than other people because we're actually at church, or we think we're better than other people because we've done more religious activities during the week, then we're covering our head and we're dishonoring our head because the center of worship is not your performance and how good you are. The center of worship is God's performance through Jesus Christ and how magnificent he is and how glory Glory-filled his work is. Do you cover your head in worship? Do you even care? God's word says you should care. If you're men who claim to worship God, then you care about the order of the worship of God. And paramount, first, right out of the chute, is you covering your head or not. And if you want to relegate that to the legalism of just wearing a hat in church, then I'm sorry you're missing out on the beautiful freedom that's found in God's word. The second thing we see, not only men who cover their heads in worship dishonor their head, but women who cover their heads in worship honor their head. Now, are you ready to have some fun? Let's do this, okay? And just don't hear what I'm not saying when I read this. I'm not saying that go back to your grandmother's house or wherever you had Thanksgiving and grab a doily off the table and make sure your wife and your daughters are wearing them next time you come to worship. Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying grab a doily. Here's what we're going to say. Every wife who prays or prophesies, let's stop there and realize that women too have an active participation in worship. If you're not secure enough in uh, the work of Christ to give freedom to women to serve in every area the Scripture allows, then you need to examine your heart. We're going to see that Paul is secure enough to do that, and we should be too. Uh, when they have an active role of praying and prophesying with their head uncovered. They dishonor their head. Okay, now, if we're to understand what the passage has said about head, then we, there, there is implications for the physical head, but we know that the head of the woman 
when we look through the understand head in terms of covenant, and we understand it in terms of the all of what all of Scripture reveals of God's relationship with with His people, and then the context of this passage, the head is not necessarily literally this for a woman. What is it? It's her husband. The authority over her. Okay. Now, it's really important to remember because this gets culturally confusing. It gets <laughs> redemptive, historically confusing. Uh, but we've got to allow if we're gonna if we're gonna take this. Look at verse ten real quick uh, of this passage. We're gonna get back to reading this. He says that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Okay, it's a symbol of authority. So we're gonna take. Uh, the reality and the substance that's behind the, symbol, the ritual and the symbol. All right, back to this verse. I'm going to start again. But the, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, uh, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair and shave her head, let her, let her cover her hair. For man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was made, uh, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman created for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. <laughs> because of the angels. Have you tried that with your kids? Go clean your room. Why? Because of the angels. I actually tried that over Thanksgiving, and it had no, it didn't work at all. They just looked at me like I was on crack. So, okay. So, I want you to notice some things in here. First, women have active participation in worship. We have, Sandy and our team has done an amazing job of unpacking the cultural chaos that is in Corinth. And he spent a lot of time talking about our relationship to food and how uh, culturally, uh, the food that was offered to idols, uh, where it stood, and how we interpret that in relationship to our weaker brother, and all kinds of culturally confusing stuff. And we understand that God's design, uh, the, the, the nature of our relationship with idols, has everything to do with our heart, and it finds its home rooted in redemptive history. When we get to this next section that is on the Lord's Supper, we're going to see that they're celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that none of our churches celebrate. They have this very large meal, and the main issue for the Corinthian church is that the rich people are taking all the food, and the poor people who have to work or can't bring enough food, they're not getting their food. And so there's got to be substance of the symbol there. And so culturally, there's a difference when it comes to the Lord's Supper uh, than there is here. What we want to do is to be able to diagnose exactly what Paul is talking about, while using the good thing of cultural interpretation, but not making it an ultimate thing. And here's how we do that. First, the chaotic culture of worship in Corinth relegated women to one of two places. One, they were on the outer courts. They weren't allowed into the worship service. Unless, two, they were the means of worship. By that I mean they were cult prostitutes. So if they wanted to be a part of worship, then men used them to worship the gods of Corinth, which Sandy's done an amazing job of unpacking, and I'm not going to duplicate what he's already told you. Paul is saying, well, let me say this first. The sign that a woman was available to be a means of worship was that she didn't wear a head covering. What is unique about Christian worship 
was that women were in the worship service. And if they didn't want to create confusion, and they wanted to honor their husbands and their head, then they're going to wear, uh, are going to wear a, head, a, a head covering. It'd be the same as uh, coming to church with your wife or your daughters and they're dressed like a prostitute. And it's just, just their, their body is just screaming availability to all the men. And the question then is, are you here to worship God or are you here to pick up dudes, right? I actually got an email, uh, one of, that's my favorite email, from an older saint in our congregation uh, about three years ago. Several pastors got this email. Stokey's already laughing. You can see a smile behind his mustache if you look closely. <laughs> so this, my favorite line of this email was on how women are dressing in worship completely inappropriately. And she said, it's a wonder why all the nursing babies aren't screaming out for food when they look around and see the amount of cleavage that's in our church. <laughs> uh, I read that about five times, laughed every time I read it, and then forwarded it to some friends. And <laughs> I took the name off of it. The point is, that's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about women in worship that are distracting from the glory of God through looking like their culture and being available by not wearing headgears, headgears, <laughs> or helmets, or head coverings, you know, whatever it is, all right? And that's what Paul, so that's, that's the cultural context that he's speaking to. The literary context that he's speaking to, and I want to go back to where he just came from. When he's talking about doing all for the glory of God, let's just read chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The glory of God is a focus. He says, give no offense to the Jews, or to the, or the Greeks, or the church of God. It would have been very offensive. Very offensive for a Greek to come into worship and see women in there without head, their heads covered. So do nothing that offends them or the church in general. Just as I please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that, but that of many that they may be saved. And when Paul is addressing the issue of headship and head covering, he has in view... Uh, the advancement of his kingdom evangelistically. He has in view the order of public worship that isn't distracting from the glory of God. He has in view, yes, modesty. But more than that, he has in view the substance, the reality of what is the ritual and the symbol. Now, on a cultural level, we understand this. If I were to hold up my wedding ring, then you know that this is a symbol of, that I am married. And then I go through the ritual of marriage and wear the symbol of marriage because the reality of marriage, I've been married to my wife for 14 years, and the substance of marriage, we've got four kids and we enjoy a lot of substance, you know what I'm saying? And so you know that there's reality and substance behind this symbol. And you know we've already talked about the food being offered to idols. You know that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not saying, oh, look, the Corinthians 
They had this huge meal, and they used unleavened bread, and they used the third cup of the Passover meal. We've got to get this culturally right. And this is, frankly, my biggest argument with people who take this passage literally, because they don't impose this on the rest of the, of the letter to the Corinthians. We don't say that we've got to keep that ritual, we've got to keep that symbol, so we're worship. What we do say is that we want to capture the reality and the substance that's behind it. And the reality and the substance is that our worship services are to be ordered in a way that reflects the authority of God, the work of God, and don't distract from the glory of God. Amen? Amen. And if we don't have men in our churches that take serious the worship of God for the glory of God, then we're not being men. we got to rise up. Because this city doesn't need more churches. This city needs our churches who have men in it to stand up and be serious about the glory of God and disadvantaging ourselves for others' gain. Hallelujah. <laughs> Woo! Is there a water break here? Let's go to the next one. God's design for headship. Verses 11 and 12. It equalizes men and women in the Lord. We hear this all the time. I am a, I'm a, we have a women, woman president of the University of Memphis. We've got women doctors. We've got women lawyers. We've got women who manage you as men. Is that a bad thing? No. It's a beautiful thing. And, and the cultural commentary on this is that you're telling me that a woman should come into a family and have a man as a head? Frankly, I think that cultural reaction is more of the abuse of your role than the proper use of it. And there's been such an abuse of male authority that there's reaction to it. But biblically speaking, yes, we're saying that. If the God of the universe can humble himself, the one who sustains and rules over everything can humble himself and submit to the will of the Father, then surely we can submit to God's design. But the beauty of this is that God's design for headship, it equalizes men and women in the Lord. We see this through that first point. Men and women need one another to faithfully reflect God's glory. Look at what this says. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent from man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. If you remember the redemptive historical context of Scripture, particularly creation, that when God created man, there was one thing that wasn't good before creation. It was that man was alone. To faithfully reflect the image of God, who has a plurality in the single nature of one true God, manifest in three persons of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he embodies community and unity. And it's not good for God to reflect his, have his image reflected through singularity. So there has to be plurality. So we need women to faithfully uh, reflect God's glory. This is what Paul says in, first, in Galatians 3. We'll get to this first. Galatians 3, 27 through 29. We're going to uh, read this really quickly. Galatians 3, 27 through 29. Sorry, I lost my place here. He says, For as many of you were baptized in Christ, you've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to his promise. For Paul, it was essential that men and women understood their roles, not only in corporate worship, but corporate life together. That we are equal. Women came from man. I used to have a friend, he, got, he dated a girl for about a year uh, and she broke up with him, and all he said about girls for like six months was, take back the rib. Just take back the rib, right? 
Men, women came from men. We're created from, they were created from the rib of Adam. But now w- men come from women. We, they came from a rib. I'm not going to go through a biology class of where we come from and the woman, but you understand we're all born of a woman. We need each other to faithfully reflect God's glory. And if we're not secure enough in Christ to allow women to serve in every capacity that Scripture makes clear that they can serve without violating what Scripture teaches because of a cultural compromise, because we care more about the, uh, the fallacy that prioritizes how things are read in the contemporary context over what Scripture is actually saying, then we're not being faithful men. And Paul was secure enough in the gospel, in the work of Christ, uh, to allow women to do that. And we see this in 16 of chapter Romans, chapter 16 of Romans. He says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant, a diaconos of the church uh, of Caesarinthia, uh, that you may welcome her in the Lord uh, in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Are we men in the church who are secure enough in the work of Christ to empower women to use their gifts in every way possible? We're we're a culture that likes to to divide in the church. The gospel creates a culture that unites. And everyone has a role in God's design in uniting. God's design for headship equalizes men and women in the Lord. The last thing we see is that God's design for headship is rebellion in an age of relativism. Men lose hair. Women cover hair. God gets the glory. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife or for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? The answer by Paul is clear. Does not nature itself teach that if man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to him? And by that, he's saying that, that men lose their hair. Um, but if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory. He was using an argument from creation and natural uh, to make this point of headship and corporate worship. For her hair is given to her as a covering. Men lose hair, women cover hair, and God gets the glory. Finally, at the end of verse 16, uh, we see that godly men welcome God's design for headship, for God's glory. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, that means to be argumentative, that means to fight, that means to, to rise up against the head, uh, then... There's no such practice, nor are there in churches of God. And I accidentally totally skipped over, and we got, we got four minutes to hit this real quick. When Paul says, this is, a, this is a major word for you this morning. When Paul says, because of the angels, he's got lots of things in mind, I think. On the one hand, that word angel can be translated as messenger. All right, so on the previous page at the bottom, it says, ex curses angels. Uh, that word, if you see your ESV footnote, can be translated as messengers. There were actually people who were coming to look at this new community of new creations and see what life was all about. We didn't, they didn't want to confuse or discourage them. On the other hand, angels, uh, we're told in 1 Peter, uh, that verse is right there, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, that angels look in on the salvific work of God, that they admire it. We're told in Luke 10, 18, that Satan, who was an angel, fell from heaven. He was exiled. And, and in Revelation 9, we see that a third of the angels were with him. And in 1 Timothy 3.16, the condemnation of Satan came because he was prideful. He wanted the place of the Lord. He wasn't content with his head. And in this last part, 
men welcome, godly men welcome God's design for headship for God's glory. I think that when Paul says because of the angels, he's referring to a spiritual reality that you and I are not fully in touch with, and that is that the angels are watching the church of God. And they want to see uh, the, the design of God where men honor their head, where women honor their head, and where men honor their head and how they are ahead to women. And they want to be encouraged and glorify God because of it. And when we're contentious and we fight, we fight among one another because we don't have the authority we want, we don't have the power we want, and women don't have their place that they're supposed to have, then we're no better than those stupid Alabama fans. And I mean that. Those two ladies in Alabama, that one who shot another Alabama fan because she wasn't upset enough that they lost to Auburn. That's stupid. It actually happened. There was a murder. That's contentious act. And there's no place for that in the church of God. Because God has clearly said that his design for headship comes from Jesus himself. Paul is passing on the authority. And this design for headship is modeled. The window of it is your relationship with women, how you lead your wife, how you lead your daughters and your kids, and how you're preparing to lead your wife and your family. And through that window, we see not only uh, the character of the divine, but we also see a model for corporate worship, that headship matters. And that when you go into worship Sunday morning, you are not grieved over the loss of your kingdom, but you're celebrating the inauguration of his. That when you go into worship Sunday morning, you're not a man who's living autonomously as if you're a king and you're a lord. You're celebrating the fact that he is king and he is lord. That you don't go into worship Sunday morning celebrating your own righteousness and your own goodness, but celebrating his righteousness and his goodness, not covering our head and bringing him to shame, but also making sure that we're celebrating in a way that brings God the glory, where the reality and the substance behind the symbol of worship is central. And in the middle, we're secure enough in Christ's work where as a headship, we realize that women are equal, that we need them to faithfully reflect God's glory. And if you're too insecure enough to do that, to do that, then you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Talk with somebody who's older than you. And may they teach you a lesson or two. And the last thing is, the last thing that we see this morning is what we just said. God's design for headship is rebellion in an age of relativism. How could you hold to an ancient document that subjugates women in such a way. Well, hopefully you've seen this morning that it's not an ancient document. It's an alive document. This is God's word. It's living and active. And you know what? It actually dignifies women. It actually gives them a place high above any that our culture gives. Uh, And we need to celebrate that and be proud of it. Let's pray together, and after I say amen, I've got to run out of here as most of y'all do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you demonstrate headship to us in the covenant of grace so that we can be free uh, to embrace your design for headship and demonstrating that as men, not only in marriage, in the covenant of marriage, but also in the worship services. Lord, would you help us to be faithful in light of your faithfulness, and would you help us to be free in light of the work that you have Uh, you have offered for us in dying for our sins, living a life that we could never live, dying the death that we deserve so that we uh, could walk in a newness of life. Lord, we thank you for your word and I pray that you would help it to form us as godly men, men who seek to be holy, set apart for you in an unholy society. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray for your mercy. In Jesus' name, all God's men said.